Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, please like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero's story. And in this conversation, I met with Martin Gillespie. It was very uplifting, although it was quite shocking to hear of the personal tragedies and circumstances that he shared in his story and got me really thinking about how I would respond in that kind of scenario. And it's quite difficult to come up with an answer. But what I loved about Martin's story and, and his whole energy and outlook on life is that he just saw it as opportunities to overcome, to learn, to become a better person. Overcoming stage four cancer and then going deep dive into health and finding ways that he could actually empower others and help people and he's now doing that across the world he's full of life and positivity and it was a really lovely conversation enjoy this one with martin gillespie Hello and welcome. Here we are. It's another episode of Kintsugi Heroes and I am with Martin Gillespie. I'm really excited. How are you today, Martin? I'm great. Thanks, Avelina. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to sharing some great stories with you and your listeners. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this as well. Um, from the first time I met you, there was a lot of energy and excitement. We had a few laughs and I don't know what your story is about, of course, and that I am very excited to hear from you. And how about we just get started? Can you can you get us going? Take us back to where, where does your story begin, and then go okay. from there. Okay. So as you as you can tell with my accent, my story began away in the land of Scotland, and I emigrated here in the year two thousand. So. Naturally, by emigrating, I, I raised the IQ level by several thousands percent, which was great. And I was a young man in, in my, you know, just turned in my 30s. Um, and I have to be honest, moving from the UK to Australia, I actually found it a little bit challenging to assimilate. Didn't know that, didn't have the personal structures, the frameworks. I didn't go to school here. And I actually found it quite lonely in the first sort of 12, 18 months, right? And a lot of people don't realize that it is, you're moving from the other side of the world. Although we speak the same language, there are several different nuances. And I, I'll be honest, I, I struggled a little bit. And, um, you know, that was, I overcame that by actually embracing sport as my go-to. And even in the UK, I was actually quite a decent runner. And I joined a running group to, to increase my social circle, which is so, so important. And from that, here in Sydney, I actually managed to meet a whole lot of people out with the framework of work. 
but also got to see some incredible parts of the country that are off the beaten track between roads and, and trails. And it was beautiful. And, you know, I got, I got in, into a fantastic group of similar minded people. We would go out running on a Saturday, have a couple of drinks on a Saturday night, but always looking after each other. It was a lot of fun. And through that, I actually met somebody. Um, I was here about two, two and a half years, met, met, a, met a girl and fell in love. And fast forward a couple of years in 20, 2006, got married to an Australian, um, lovely girl. And then, you know, I was in my late thirties at that point. So 2006 got married, 2007, we brought the first beautiful child to the world, a young, gorgeous girl. And then two years later, brought another gorgeous girl into the world. And then certain things happened that um, here we are in our mid-30s. We're living that, dare I say it, that white picket fence mentality, working in a very senior corporate environment, um, mortgage, kids, that treadmill of life that every day is almost like Groundhog Day. And you're trying to balance everything. And you've got so many balls up in the air. And I'll be really honest, I, I felt a little bit lost in who I was. I'd lost my identity in some ways, but I hadn't realized that. And one key thing that now in, in retrospectively looking back, that's when I should have gone and maybe got some coaching or some help. But again, being Scottish, you're too stoic. You're a bit too, you know, oh, I can't ask for help because that's, that's not what we're made from, if that makes sense. So were these, so could I just ask Martin, were these feelings coming about as a result of having two young babies, and a like a baby and a toddler at that point? Is that right? Yeah, and I, I think also I had no blood family here. Mm. So I had nobody really to sort of share my feelings. And I suppressed a lot of my feelings, if that makes sense. And, you know, the feelings also of being a dad, I'd never been a dad before. And a lot of the focus is on the mum. And I'm not meaning in a sexist way, but I felt in the outside. And I was, I'll be honest, I was struggling a little bit about adapting from corporate, married, having children, and then going, what am I doing? Who am I? Did you and feel un not necessarily um, needed or important or... Did your role change at the point of having children? Probably all of them, actually, to be honest. Um, mm. You know, I don't, I, I knew I was ready to be a father, don't get me wrong. However, I don't know if I was emotionally ready to know what it involved. And I also mm. don't think I was getting enough support, you know, whether it be male to male support, if that makes sense as well. And I think that that's really important. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ask for help. And I don't know if, if my heart was open enough to understand that that's what I needed. Um, so I, I, I kind of struggled, but I, I suppressed those feelings like most, most men do. Mm -hmm. And that those feelings sort of amplified a little bit in, in that kind of stressful environment. I was in a very high pressured um, corporate role that involved a lot of traveling. So I would be, traveling in various locations throughout Australia and New Zealand, 
And then you, you're trying to go from that life to home life with two young kids. And I struggled a little bit on that, but I didn't know what to do. Mm. So I just ignored it. Did you share it with your wife? No, because again, I felt I didn't have enough emotional intelligence in me, if that makes sense. Mm. And enough confidence to voice these out, these, these areas out. And there was a little voice in me saying, you can't talk about your feelings, Martin. That's a, that's a failure. Mm. And I really struggled in that sense. And, you know, fatigue is falling into it. You're trying to, as I mentioned earlier, about having so many balls up in the air. And you think that's what life is about. And you're sleep deprived. Um, and your communication, you're almost like two ships in the night, so to speak, with your, with, with, well, I know that's how I felt with my wife. And then in 2010, certain things started happening and there were certain fundamental life changing events that shaped the next to where we are now. In 2010, my mum had been, my parents had been out here in um, the April. And then six weeks after they'd gone back to Scotland, my mum died quite suddenly at the age of 68. Now, she hadn't kept the best of health over the last sort of 20 years between heart disease and um, she'd early on um, dementia. So, she, you know, her, her quality of life wasn't fantastic, but it was your mother. Mm. It was the first time I had endured a close family dying. I mean, grandparents had died, but it's your mother. It's, you know, it's in that real circle. So I remember flying back, and again, we've, we've got two young children, so I did the flight back to the UK. You cannot go, you cannot not go back to family, family funeral. And I found it really emotionally challenging. And the culture of what Scotland is to compare to the culture here, it was that high up and down and roller coasting. And I think I was back in Scotland for about five days, highly emotionally charged. I've got, very, I've got a few siblings. So we're all together and we're going, what just happened? And I'm there, you know, boom, five minutes more or less. So I wasn't coping with the loss and the grief. When I came back to Australia, I'm switching into father mode, work mode. And again, ignoring my feelings and ignoring that inner voice in me saying, maybe you should go and see someone. Maybe you should go and get some help, you know. And then that was 2010 and I got onto that treadmill of life that we spoke about and, you know, working away Groundhog Day again. And then so in 2011, had, sorry, go on. I was just going to ask, so you hadn't really processed the grief around the, the loss of your mother? No, not, not, not at all. I, I didn't mm. find the space because mm. I kept putting things on top of that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I was only four late 30s early I was about 40 I think so mm. I didn't have the tools and I also didn't have that you know you mentioned a great point did I speak to my wife we've got two young kids you're you're exhausted mm. and sometimes your wife or your partner it's not the right person to be subjective mm. I needed an extra frame of frame of reference mm. so that happened in 2010 and you know I'm on that treadmill of life and you know I two sisters at the time in the UK and two brothers. So I thought. And in 2011, we found out that my parents had been married 43 years, but my father had a mistress for 35 and I actually have another brother in Scotland. 
How did you find that out? We found out after several months of my mum's passing, my dad had a girlfriend and we're thinking, oh yeah, this is a bit yep. you know, quick. A bit quick. Mm. And then there was a, a, a boy who kept coming to my, my father's house who resembled my younger brother. And people kept the you know, typical sort of um, suburbia, suburbia neighbourhoods. People saying, oh, is your younger brother back? Because my younger brother lives in the Channel Islands, which is quite a distance from Glasgow, where, my, where I was brought up. People going, no, it's not David. It's not David. So after some investigations, my sisters confronted my father and said, is Christopher a relative? And my father said, yes, he's my son. He's your half-brother. So when I found out, Abilene, I think I went into pure Billy Conley mode and used mm -hmm. the F word an awful lot. Mm -hmm. And I think I found out at 6.30 in the morning and by about 8 o'clock, I'd, I'd had about five coffees and I was ready for a lot more. What was the emotion that you were actually, like what would take me through the, the roller coaster of emotions? Shock. Mm. Um, and also, did my mother know? And the protection of my mother, I was quite close to my mother, and the protection of my mother was something I'm going, did she know? And, you know, is it one of those things that is better just swept under the carpet? I will never know the answer to that. And the emotional roller coaster, and bearing in mind, I'm hearing these things at different time zones, and my kids are four and two at the time. You've got the pressures of living. You've got the pressures of having a lifestyle, if that makes sense. And you're hearing this. And again, emotionally, I'm going, what am I doing? Mm. And again, that, that, if you want to call it grief in many ways, shock, I did not get any help. I didn't reach out for any professional help because I thought I can deal with it. And I'll be really transparent here. One of the areas where I would deal with it would be denial, hiding it, travel away so that I would think that it would be a escape. And I'll be really honest with my background, and it's, it's quite normal for, for most humans to do it. Alcohol became a band-aid. Yeah. And that's a cheap band-aid, right? It doesn't solve anything, um, but it's in plentiful supply. Yeah. So I would be traveling for work, drinking too much, then having that lifestyle of coming back to the family nest. So two parallel universes, if that makes sense. Mm. So that was in 2011, and I'm trying to deal with that and um, also try and bring some joy into my life as well, going, I've got two beautiful kids. You know, I should be in a, in a happy phase. And then in 2012, something else happened. In 2012 um, was a year of incredible feats. 2012, I was, I remember sitting at the end of, at the beginning of 2012 with goals that I wanted to achieve. And I've been a long, to, a, a long distance runner for a long time. And I thought, I'm going to be 42 this year. I want to run a marathon. It's 42 kilometers. Makes great sense to me, right? And my wife at the time was supportive and we're sort of thinking, okay, which one? We could make a holiday out of it. So, becomes a bit of a goal for the family, which makes sense. However, in the April of that year, my younger sister who had been diagnosed with breast cancer four years prior, 
actually lost her life at the age of 37 to a thing called inflammatory breast cancer. Now, breast cancer has got, like many cancers, they come in very different modes. Inflammatory breast cancer is cancer not of a duct, but it's actually of in between the layers of skin. And when it's in your skin, your skin being your biggest organ, it can go anywhere. And at the age of 37, way too young. And she passed away. She had an 11-year-old boy, um, you know, husband, etc. I remember flying back for, for she was in palliative care, and I flew back and I actually saw her pass. I got there 12 hours before she passed over. And it was incredibly beautiful, if that makes sense. And the irony is that she died seven days before my mother's second anniversary. So that was 2012. That was April 2012. So when I came back to Australia, um, at that point, I would say my relationship with my wife was we were on parallel universes, if that makes sense. And there were a couple of other things happening. So our communication wasn't fantastic. We were two young kids and I'm bottling up a lot of this grief. I'm not coping with it but I'm hiding it, if that makes sense. Mm. So Denise was my sister, came back after her funeral, and I'm just sort of trying to get myself, again, not asking for any help and not reaching out for help. And six weeks later, just thinking that everything was going okay, if that makes sense, that you'll get through it, you know, every day is different. Six weeks later, my father was on a, a wall, a six-foot wall, so... If you're not familiar with six foot, it's about 1.8 meters. He climbed up on a garden wall, a, a brick wall, and he climbed onto the wall to chop overhanging branches. And as he overstretched, he had a shirt. He was wearing a shirt and a, he had a pair of garden secateurs in his top pockets. And he slipped off the wall. And as he slipped off the wall, the secateurs pierced him in the heart and he bled to death. So dealing with this, the death of my mother in 2012, Thing in 2011, Denise dying in 2012, uh, April, then dad dying of an accidental death. Again, my emotional body and my whole cellular body and every, every part of my framework is going, what am I doing? I felt as if somebody had a voodoo doll and just putting pins into it. So sleep was compromised. Um, again, I threw my energy into work because I was in denial of my emotions. I mentioned there that um, the communication with my wife and I were, were wasn't fantastic. It was just, it was functional, but there was no love, if that makes sense. And six weeks, six months after that, in the end of um, September 2012, we decided to separate. Now, I knew instinctively, as I mentioned, that my body was, was you generally have a feeling. Most people have a feeling that their body's not firing. But again, a lot of people are in denial, and I was one of them. And I found around September, October time, I had a little lump behind, underneath my jaw and I could push it in in the morning and then come out. And I shave most days. So you've seen how beautiful you are. Not like here when I've got, you know, something wrong with my eye, but you're looking going, gee, I get better looking every day. I can't wait to wake up tomorrow. And you're playing with this little ball, if that makes sense. And you think, God, what is it? So I decided to go to the dentist because I thought it's a dental problem. And like most people, I don't have the greatest love for dentists. So I went to the dentist and they actually said, Martin, 
you actually have the perfect mouth. So I actually got them to record that because it was a compliment I'd never heard before. But they said, we suggest and highly recommend that you go and see a GP, a general practitioner. There's something wrong with your body that it's not functioning properly. So that took me down a pathway of going to see a GP. And typical bloke, I hadn't seen a GP for many months, many years even. And that kicked off a whole array of tests. And in order to get an analysis of what's wrong, you go through that discovery phase. So it's every test under the sun. And, you know, from a physical and mental and emotional um, aspect. And, you know, so I'm going through a separation, grief. So your body keeps the score. Your body knows what's happening. But functional medicine doesn't actually say that. But they're going, okay, that's great. Now, I recall having a conversation with my ex-wife now going, I'm getting tested for every type of illness, including things like HIV and AIDS, because HIV and AIDS can remain dormant in your blood for up to 30 years. So your marriage is collapsing. You're talking about blood disorders. My whole body is all over the place. And, to cut it, and that also opened up a new language of PET scans, CT scans, MRI. I thought I was going to the vet or something. You know, I had to Google what these things. And the bit when it really hit going, I'm really unwell, was when they said to me, you have to go and see a surgeon. We're going to do a biopsy on you. And that's when I got really scared. And that's when I knew there was something, I was going to say, more serious than what I had originally thought of. When they did a biopsy, my body froze and I thought, I'm in the poop. I don't know what's happening here. Um, and I actually had an adverse reaction to a normal a biopsy for those listeners and um, those watching. A biopsy is generally day surgery. You're in for a couple of hours and then you're out. They kept me in overnight because I had this reaction to, the, to coming out of being under, so to speak. And lo and behold, this surgeon said to me, look, we'll, we'll give you the details on the Monday. Um, go home, rest, don't do anything too strenuous. So by this stage, I was actually staying with some mates and um, I, was, I was really scared. I knew there was something wrong, but you don't know the facts. And I went home, restless couple of days. And then on the Monday, the surgeon called me and said, are you sitting down? I need you to write down what I'm about to say to you. And he said, right, we believe you have a thing called follicular lymphoma, which is a form of non-Hodgson's lymphoma, which is a blood cancer. We believe you're at stage two. And I wrote all the things down that he said, and he said, look, you're going to see a hematologist. And I'd never heard of a hematologist before. He said, you've seen them on, a, on Wednesday. Here's the appointment, et cetera, et cetera. And give me directions. And he said, look, you, you're going to be okay. And as soon as he put the phone down, I just put my phone down and I burst into tears. And again, I probably used a lot of language that I don't really want to express here, but you can just imagine what they were like. And I was really scared. On a Wednesday, I went to see the hematologist and I'm sitting and I actually had to persuade my ex-wife to come along with me because I said, I need some support. But she's gone through the trauma of breakdown of marriage, being the primary carer of two kids, et cetera. And she was going, it's your problem. You deal with it. So 
I remember when I walked into the consultant's room and he said, Martin, we've made a mistake. Like, oh, this is great. It's not stage two cancer, it's stage four cancer. And for those who don't know, stage there is no stage five. Stage four cancer meant that so I a blood cancer is cancer of your lymphatic system. I had tumors the size of golf balls in my neck, both upper and lower, under my armpit, in my groin, around my kidneys, and every white blood cell was producing cancer cells. And thanks to medication and advancements in technology and medication, I'm still alive now. But he said, you're going straight into chemotherapy, but before you do that, you're going to see a counselor tomorrow. Because I just cried. And that's when I knew I was emotionally broken. My body was about to go into another phase of what the hell is going to happen. And I was petrified. And knowing that my sister had died and she was diagnosed as stage three cancer, yes, it's a different cancer, but here's me stage four. And it brought back all the things about Denise's journey and all that stuff. So I was, I was preparing to die. Who did you tell that point? So I called my sister. I've got an older sister who's a year older than me. I called my sister and I said, look, you better sit down. This is what's happened. So all my family in the UK were, you know, again, similar to me around what happened to Denise, my sister, and my dad going, bloody hell. They, they weren't aware about my marriage breaking up or my journey, my what, what I was about to go through. So they were petrified for me. And the other side of the world, they couldn't even see me, if that makes sense. Um, and I was about to embrace in the biggest fight I have had in my life. And I was absolutely petrified. And I did some really stupid things, I have to say. Um, I embraced chemotherapy. And on my very first day of getting chemotherapy, which took, I think it was either 10 or 11 hours, I got it injected into my arm. And I always took it in my, I took it in my left arm because I'm right-handed. And I thought, I need to get my right hand dominant. So that was the day of chemotherapy. And when, unknown to me, they, they give you chemotherapy and then they give you a whack load of drugs. I felt, and especially with my accent, I actually felt as if I was an extra from that famous train spotting movie, choosing drugs as a way of life. There were some great things. And over the next five days, I had to take about 30 different drugs every day. And on the third day, I had to inject myself as well to boost my immune system. My immune system became compromised completely. I'd no, those again, might not be medical. I'd no T cells, so I'd no immune system. I was neutropenic, therefore I was susceptible to a lot of disease. Again, I didn't know that at the time. And I made a stupid error. I decided on day three, I thought, I feel great. And at this point in time, the truth of Lance Armstrong hadn't come out. So I started reading all his stuff and watching stuff on YouTube, etc. So I decided to go for a 5K run three days after chemotherapy. And Mr. Stupid appeared two days later and did exactly the same. My body collapsed. And I ended up in hospital for three days. And kind of no, I, I kind of look back on, on laughter, if that makes sense, right? Thinking, you're an idiot, or what's that effect? 
But again, I didn't have, I didn't have a primary carer to look after me to say, don't be an idiot. And it's not about tough love. It's sometimes you, you, you need a carer if you're going through major life changes, if that makes sense. And I didn't have that. And although we go and see psychologists, et cetera, again, there's that fight or flight that's coming in. I'm not sleeping or I'm sleeping and waking up at three in the morning. And, you know, one of the, one of the skills that I had from my mother, I was one of five kids and she would even iron our underwear. So I'm ironing underwear at five in the morning because I'm bored. So if your readers want, you know, their underwear ironed at three in the morning, I was your man at that time. Um, and again, I was such shock. I had so many things going on, trying to save my marriage, trying to work in corporate and trying to stay alive. So which battle do you do first? Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us continue to produce more hero stories and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kitsukiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kitsukiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. And it was the words of the psychologist that actually said to me, the cancer psychologist, when I walked in and she said, Martin, welcome to a new beginning. And those have resonated with me since then, that without that help, I would not be here. But it took something as strong as cancer to make me stop. And over the years, I've embraced getting professional help. When Even when I'm feeling good, to know what it's like to feel good is also a really good emotion. So fast forward now, you know, 10 years later, I've now completely, dare I use the, the, the famous word of the last few years, I've pivoted like a lot of people have said goodbye to my corporate world. I've set up my well-being company, consulting company, in order to focus on educating people on their most important asset in life, and that's their health. Nothing else matters apart from your health. So I've retrained, um, and over the last few years, I was actually a board member of um, Australasian College of Nutritional Environmental Medicine, which actually helps teach medical practitioners, nutritional medicine, which I got some qualifications in. And I'm thriving in that space, um, being a bloke focusing not just on men's health, but also health of well-being. Just be healthy. Nothing, again, nothing else matters. And if you're not living a fruitful and thriving life, what's your purpose? So that's some of my story, Aveline. And I, I, I just, you know, your, your facial expressions were, I knew I was going to do this to you. And, you know, I think you're making me cry actually with not, with, without any words. <sighs> it's pretty powerful stuff when 
life gives you, you know, a triple Mack truck, you know, in a year, right? Oh, it's, it's a cracker. And one thing, and I think you might get this actually, and hopefully I've given the frame of reference. My relationship with cancer, I'm actually thankful of cancer because I was on the wrong pathway. Mm. But it took me a while to actually, and to engage with getting some help to acknowledge that. So here's, here's a question, Martin. At the point where you've started your chemotherapy journey and the healing of cancer, what was your internal belief about your life? Were you fearful at this point? Were you thinking about what your mum and your sister had been through and everything else? And then there's the breakdown of your marriage. You know, where was your state of mind at that point? So that's a great question. Um, I fell into the victim space quite a lot and felt the world was on my shoulders. And um, one of the things that helped me getting through that was I went to one of the psychologists I went to see. I remember actually at one point seeing a psychologist about separating families, seeing one on cancer and seeing one for myself. And I was exhausted. I'm going, I've just had chemotherapy. I can't think straight. I had chemo brain. You know, I had to write, I had a notepad and piece of paper and writing down all my thoughts on a daily basis. But it was one psychologist that helped me change my mindset a little bit. and. It was, I went to see him in, a, in an area here in Sydney near the beach. And I was kind of, it was a beautiful day. And I always, if you go to the beach, you've always got swimming gear or whatever with you. And it was what he said to me, it was really profound. And he said, listen, do me a favor, but more importantly, do yourself a favor. Get out of my office, get your running shoes on, go for a run and get into the ocean and start living your life. But he also, before we, we went to that, that space, again, a tool that I learned from him, he asked me to write my obituary. And that was really confronting. He said, where's your purpose in life? Write your, and I found that got me out of the victim space, if that makes sense. And it was a really powerful tool um, to actually go live your life. This is just a, a crossing that you have to cross into another space. But live your life. You're here for a reason. So you didn't believe at that point you were going to die? No, I. there were one or two times when I thought, and I didn't get into the phase of depression, but I was forming a high anxiety level, if that makes sense. And the biggest fear mm -hmm. I had actually was the impact of the drugs that were having for me. I hated chemotherapy with a passion. And I tried to make some humor out of it because I think humor is a great equalizer. It can also, um, if used incorrectly, can muffle some of your emotions. So I would go to the cancer ward and I would tell them, oh, I need to get a left-handed cannula because I get my chemotherapy in left hand. So the, the young nurses would be walking around looking for left-handed cannulas. And one of the drugs that I had, um, called when Christine was a red color. So it gets injected into you. So when you go to the bathroom, you pass it through. So I thought parts of my body were breaking up when it was going in me and obviously coming out. And that was a big fear for me, if that makes sense. 
Mm. Um, but then I also, one of the key things that, another key pillar, if that makes sense, was I went back to my first love, if that, if you know what I mean. So my first love has always been nutrition. And I studied nutrition as part of my hotel catering degree back in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's how I got involved with the medical team as well, uh, the medical college. I studied there as well about the power of nutrition and that famous phrase, let food be thy medicine, let medicine be thy food. And I made some errors. Don't get me wrong. I had a thing called peripheral neuropathy, which is no feeling in your fingers, like pins and needles in your fingers. And that's actually caused by a lack of B12. And one of many of the chemotherapy drugs actually cause that. So if you're not eating properly, you're actually not combating the drugs. So I couldn't hold a knife to chop things. So in, in typical kind of Scottish fashion, I went out and bought blenders and juicers and all that stuff and protein powders. And you're making these juices up and they were pretty expensive and they tasted like crap, but I was too proud to let them go. So I would be drinking them and eating them and they were horrible. And I realized also that the power of real foods, not processed food and the impact that sugar has on your well-being is so, so important. So I've really gone down the phase where your gut health impacts your mental health and your mindset. And I'm really grateful for the assistance that I've had from psychologists, from nurses, from medical practitioners. They all play a part of your village of well-being. Mm, very true. How, at what point along your healing journey from the point of being diagnosed with the cancer, would you say you felt that your life had pivoted? How long did it take you to get to that point where you were on a different path and in control and feeling? So again, that's a, that's a great question. I, I was used mm. to the corporate environment. So, you know, that corporate bandwidth, you go to university, you get qualified, you get degrees, you go you, and after chemotherapy, I thought I could easily switch back into that. And then I went for a job. I changed jobs, changed companies, changed culture, and it didn't work for me. And I repeated those processes for about seven or eight years. I would only last about 18 months in a job because yeah. I wasn't invested in that, if that makes sense. And I knew there was something else. The one thing I am grateful, however, is that in those organizations, I veered hugely towards the well-being committees that were involved in the organizations. And I learned a lot, but I also gave a lot as well. I gave a lot of insights. And again, mentioning earlier about men's well-being, we didn't talk about men's well-being. And I've been pretty open here around the masks of alcohol, that you can be a functional alcoholic and hide it really well. And again, it's, that's, that's gender neutral as well, right? But men seem to do that a lot. Mm. so I started going well wait a minute I'm, I, if I want to look after myself I'm responsible for my own health but I'm also responsible for actively being curious and asking but also receiving help and one of the things that I, again another tool that helped me throughout all, all of this and it's still to this day I do lots of yoga and I remember going to yoga when I was going through chemotherapy and I had no eyebrows, no hair, no body hair. I couldn't see my left or right. And all I could do was laugh. 
So I'm in a certain pose. And for those who are unfamiliar with yoga, I'm in a child pose. So you're just lying on your mat. And I'm like a bunny on steroids. I just keep laughing. But the engagement of being in a community really helped me as well. Because, again, emotionally, I kind of became too insulated. And I lost a lot of confidence in myself. But going to yoga helped break that out of me. And when you're going through major trauma, you know, with, with regardless of where it is, and I can speak, I think, vehemently around cancer, it does, it's a, goes straight into your psyche on so many levels. And there are some great people who do some terrific work there, but I also think that they're too functional in the thinking. Um, I think it's got to change. It's, it's been the same protocol for 30, 40 years. And it has to change. Cancer, the more I'm, I'm finding out, cancer is metabolic syndrome on steroids. And a lot of that is, believe it or not, your food and lifestyle will help you get cancer. It will also help you cure yourself of cancer. Mm. But there's no, I was going to say, there's no money in that, if that makes sense, compared to the, um, the profits of mm. big pharma and drug companies. Absolutely. Would you say that your background in nu nutrition and health was a saviour, so to speak? Yeah, um, because it's something that you do every day. Mm. And it's also something you can have fun with. And it also opened me up about the community of food, if that makes sense, and the community of nutrition. And a key thing that I... I recall, so I, I worked in kitchens, for example, in London and in, in Europe. The freshness of foods, the seasonality of foods. And over our generation, I've learned we've lost that. And our mm. kids, that's, that's a foreign language to them. Mm. That is really powerful. And it's also really powerful knowing which foods are actually right for your body, whether it be your body type, your blood type. There's a lot more to it than just saying, that medical phrase of an apple a day keeps the doctor away, that's marketing. Mm. Tell me, uh, I'm really interested. There's a, a couple of questions here around your family. First one is around the half-brother that you discovered <laughs> um, during that year. Have you built or established any kind of relationship with him? Is he, is he part of you and your siblings' life? So one of my brothers has, has kept contact with him. Um, my younger brother, no, my, my sister, no. And it's funny you say that because I'm actually planning to go back to the UK early next year. And one of the objectives I have is actually to meet him. Oh, good. But I'll be honest with you. I was angry at first mm -hmm. when I knew about it, but it wasn't his fault, if that makes sense. And there's nobody's yeah. fault, but mm -hmm. you're in disbelief and you know, you're on that emotional roller coaster and not having someone that you could you can share that with was was extremely difficult. And look, I think his name's Christopher. I think he must be early forties. I'm sure he's got some kids of his own, etc. Well, they're half my kids. Well, not half my kids, if you know what I mean. They're my family. Yeah. And one thing that I would say, actually, and again, it comes down to that kind of seventies um, mentality as well. One thing I'm thankful of my father, which I think societal judgment was. At that time, and even today, 
men and women have affairs, it's very easy just to have an abortion. Mm. And I was brought up Catholic and they, did, they didn't have, they didn't, obviously it's not part of the belief system. And I'm grateful for that. So really from that point of view, um, I would like to meet him, give him a hug, find out who he is. He's part mm. of my life now. He's part of my kid's life as well. Don't ignore it. But for the first couple of years, I denied it, if that makes sense, because it was too mm. much. Mm. Certainly with everything else that was going on oh. and the death of your mother and and then your sister. Yeah. Um, how has your relationship with your siblings gone since your cancer diagnosis? How have you processed together? And So it's um, so one of the things that I did um, to keep them all the fact from the emotion, if that makes sense, when I was getting chemotherapy, I used to write emails to them all, just a generic email. Hi, this is phase two of chemo, chemo ward. And a bit of humor, but I also put down, I actually found them recently. And there's a lot of fear in it, right? Mm. And, you know, I'm feeling okay, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now what, my, one of my brothers, my older brother, Every time he hears that I've gone to hospital, he's always fearful that cancer has come back. Because again, he doesn't know that much about it, if that makes sense, or he doesn't, he doesn't want to know about it. And it's no disrespect to himself. It's not in his space. Mm, mm. Um, one big blessing around having a cancer journey and again, having a team of people, I get checked up every three months. So I've had to work that relationship as well, Aveline, with the anxiety of going back every three months. Mm. And that took a couple of years to, to change that from a fear to a fearless mentality. Every time we go there thinking it's going to come back. So I would be counting down the weeks to going, oh, I'm seeing my hematologist, seeing my hematologist. Now I see him and he's sort of going, what are you doing with yourself? It's, you should have relapsed at least twice by now. You were that ill. So we have this love here. I, you know, he tries to tell me about my nutrition plan and I'll say, I'll start telling you about blood disorder. So let's agree to disagree here. And he's got a, you know, non-empathetic medical, um, bent. You know, I'm just under six foot. I'm 73 kilos. So I'm pretty well built. Mm -hmm. And, um, I went to see him recently and he said, what are you doing, Martin? You're looking great. You're not the Oompa Loompa that used to come in here a few years ago. I'm like, what happened to your manners? If it's only you, you can get lost. So again, one of the key things, again, a big call out I would say actually is when you find a good medic, it's about the two-way relationship. They can learn from you. They're only human, first of all. And ask them how the hell they are is really important. Mm. I, but he's a, he's a part of my team. I've got a team of I call it a team of angels around me. And no one is right, but no one is wrong. Mm. But I've got a good team. I've also dropped some people over the years of that team because they've served the purpose going on to another another area. Mm. Mm. And that's really important. Absolutely. So you're in control of who's in your circle, who's influencing you, who's giving you the the advice that you know intuitively is right or wrong for you. So, you know, making those judgment calls and, and protecting that space. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I talk about, you know, I mentioned it about yoga. One of the things that um, took me a while to get into, and it's not something I do every day, 
But the power of meditation is so, so important. Mm. And again, if I look back on my life pre-cancer, if that makes sense, you're always rushing. And I mentioned about escapism and denial, etc. When you meditate and you do that inner work, and I know that you've done it, when you do that inner work, you become really powerful because you become your superpower. Mm. And you become the stronger person. And mm. occasionally you might need um, a little bit of medication or a little bit of direction, and that's good. But you have to, you become open-minded about that. So mm. I'm in an open-minded space now. And thankfully, I, you know, I think I'm a role model, if that makes sense. And it's not blowing smoke up my backside, but it's a role model of don't allow cancer to dominate who you are. It's interesting you said that, Martin, because one of the questions, the final questions I have is around the perception that others have of you after seeing you go through this journey. What's been that perception of friends, uh, your ex-wife, your children? How do they how do they perceive you? So that's a great question. My kids were really young, and mm -hmm. I don't think they fully understand it. They're all, they're fifteen and tw thirteen now. So I think they, mm -hmm. once they understand it. And I actually wrote about it in a in a chapter that was published uh, last year in the book that I was co-authored. I wrote my feelings and, and emotions and some of the roller coasters that we've discussed today. When they're ready, I'll let them hear my side of it. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a good relationship. I don't have a relationship with my ex-wife, mm -hmm. which is disappointing. Um, and one thing that I didn't, you know, we didn't mention, and uh, I'll be open about it. Whilst I was going through the chemotherapy, it also kicked off three years of family court. That's a whole hour and a half of conversation, right? And that's yeah. that's yeah. one area yeah. where it's still to to this day. I know what my perception is, and that's an area where I think a lot of there's there's a whole hornet's nest there. Mm. There is, but I my, understand. My kids, and when I was diagnosed with uh, cancer, actually, just to put a frame of reference as well, when I was diagnosed with blood cancer, my ex-wife said, Martin, it's only a blood cancer. It's not a real cancer. You'll be fine. So yeah. when you said about support and about um, love and about where it is now, um, I know that I've done a lot of work on myself. I also know that I'm embracing making mistakes every single day and loving it. And when my kids were really little, I would be taking them to school and I would say to them, girls, I'm going to make at least three mistakes today, but I'm going to learn five things. So that just functional thinking. And you'll remember when your kids would go, oh, you're stupid, right? If you're not learning more every single day, you're not growing. But you also have to let go of things. And that's where I think things like meditation and the power of yoga and what you're doing here on this platform, allowing a voice to actually get that community to talk about their emotions and break down some of the preconceptions that we have. Again, I mentioned about um, gender neutral, but a hell of a lot of guys don't discuss their emotions from the heart. Yeah, that's right. Thank you for saying that. What's been the silver lining for you, if there has been a silver lining or a gold nugget over the last, oh, I don't know how many God. years? That's a, that's a terrific question. Um, I think it was something that a mate of mine said to me the other week. He said, Martin, I don't know if you're a genius or you're bonkers. Right? 
with the fact that I'm such an advocate about healthy thriving. And I'm also an advocate that seeking help, but there's one thing to seek for help, but there's a different emotion to receive help. So you've got to work on both of them. And that takes a little bit of time. I mean, I'm dealing with someone just now who is in denial. And you can see the car crash about to happen, hmm. right? I think the other thing is I know I can go to bed at nighttime feeling satisfied with whom I am. I found my purpose. I've found who I am. Hmm. And that is giving me the strength. You know, when things go wrong or you, you can bring fears and all that kind of stuff, they don't mean anything. And I don't want that to end. I also, I, I want to always have that rudimentary ABC, always being curious. And that's what makes my heart dance, so to speak. And if you're not being able to do that, again, you're not, you're not being able to live. Yeah. That's a so powerful and a, a beautifully poetic way to sort of come to the end of the conversation. I've got a final question for you. Sure. If there's someone listening to this now who's going through anything that you've been through that you've talked about, is there anything you'd like to say to them that might make them feel a bit better? Yeah, you're not alone. There's incredible help out there. And it's okay to cry. It's, okay. it, it's encouraged to show your emotions. Don't bottle it up. Be vulnerable. If you're in a relationship, Cry to your partner, get them to hold your hand and talk from, dare I say, your childlike instincts. And don't, don't allow fear to talk, to judge your emotions. They're really powerful words. And I hope that those listening can really process those and take them in and, and try and embody them because they're, they're really beautiful and, Fabulous words to own and operate. One of the, one of the things that, um, and I know we're going to have a different podcast on a different platform, but one of the things when I speak in public, a little tool that again is a little gift that people can do on a daily basis and they can do it anytime. Take your right hand. Sorry, that's my left. Take your right hand. And I want you to do this actually with me. Take your right hand, put it over your heart. There are four chambers in your heart, two upper, two lower. And every single day, reframe your thinking and embrace them as love, light, laughter, and connection. And you can give yourself a heart hug at any time of the day, and it makes you feel fantastic. Wow, I've never heard of that before. That's just beautiful. What a warm and loving way to finish this up. Martin, thank you so much for sharing your story. Absolute going pleasure. back through the the, the the cobwebs, the pain, and for all of it, I'm really grateful. It was just beautiful. Really enjoyed the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I look forward to speaking with you again. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below. Join us next week for our next hero story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way.